From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Human organ transplantation has come a long way since Dr. Christian Barnard performed the first heart transplant in 1967. Today, people who receive hearts, kidneys, livers, and other organs are living longer, healthier lives. But despite progress, there remains a critical shortage of organs. One donor can help maybe 50 or 60 patients by giving organs, by giving tissue, cornea, and their effect is profound. We'll get an update on organ transplantation from the director of the transplant program at Mayo Clinic. Also on the program, springtime allergies are at their peak. We'll talk with an allergy specialist about managing symptoms. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Human organ transplantation has come a long way since the first transplant, a kidney, was performed in 1954. For example, survival has gone from just 18 days for the recipient of the first heart transplant in 1967 to a national average three-year survival rate of 84% today. Heart transplant, if you have one, you have an 85% chance you'll survive at least three years. Better anti-rejection drugs, refinement of the organ procurement process, and better matching of donors with recipients has all contributed to higher survival rates. But there's still a shortage of organs. On any given day, there are about 120,000 people in this country waiting for an organ transplant. That's an amazing number. And here to talk about the state of organ transplant is Dr. Brooks Edwards. Dr. Edwards is director of the Center for Transplantation and Clinical Regeneration at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Edwards. Nice to be here. It's a pretty impressive title, Transplantation and Clinical Regeneration. When did the second part get added? Well, the name got changed about uh, three years ago as we uh, started to apply techniques of regenerative medicine to transplantation. Some of it is still in its infancy, and we're developing the techniques. But our hope is that uh, over the years, we won't have to be waiting for donors and a tragic death to have a successful transplant. You'll be able to somehow induce the organ to remake itself, regenerate. Right. And in fact, many organs are quite capable of regeneration. The liver may be the best example. Nowadays, we sometimes do living donor liver transplant, where a surgeon will take out about half of a donor's liver. That liver regenerates in almost six weeks. What is it that got you into organ transplants? What is your history? Well, I uh, trained in uh, internal medicine and cardiology and was interested in congestive heart failure. And uh, really the most dramatic treatment for congestive heart failure is uh, heart transplantation. Now, luckily, most patients with heart failure don't need heart transplantation, but for those uh, smaller number of patients who don't have good conventional therapy, cardiac transplant can be a really dramatic and exciting change in their life. So your career sort of evolved, and you ultimately became a transplantation specialist, now head of the program at Mayo. How many hearts are we doing every year at at Mayo, and then also around the country? So uh, at Mayo Clinic, across our three sites in Arizona, Florida, and Minnesota, we'll do roughly 100 heart transplants, and we'll do probably about 150 
mechanical pumps, LVADs or total artificial heart implants. And those people waiting for uh, for a heart to become available? So the, the uh, pump therapy is uh, divided into some patients uh, who are using it as a bridge to transplant, and it can be a very long bridge, so patients can wait on an LVAD for uh, two, three, four, five years. Hmm. For some patients who might not be uh, transplant candidates, the LVAD uh, becomes a long-term therapy for them. What's the longest you've ever had a patient on a mechanical heart? Well, we have uh, patients now who are out about seven years, and uh, uh, they can be very stable. They can do very well. They get back to active life. They get home. They get back to work. They travel. Um, it, it can be a very uh, satisfying quality of life. You just want to make sure the battery is always charged, though. The battery technology has improved quite a bit over the years. <laughs> so now the batteries uh, last about 12 hours, and uh, patients always know to carry an extra set of batteries with them. Wow. What, is there one that is better than the other? Is it better to have a transplanted human heart, or is a mechanical heart better? Well, I, I think some folks would uh, um, debate that. The... A uh, mechanical uh, solution provides a off-the-shelf solution, so you're not waiting uh, for a donor. Uh, but there are issues with uh, mechanical solutions that aren't quite as good as the, the heart that maybe we came from the maker with. In your mind, what are the most impressive advances that have occurred over the past 60 years since the very first kidney transplant? Well, 60 years, a lot has happened in the field of transplantation. So uh, I think the first thing that we have to think about is the general acceptance of transplantation. So uh, in the early days, people looked at a transplant patient as almost a boy-in-the-bubble kind of uh, uh, freak of nature. And, and now we recognize that transplant patients are all over and all around us and, and doing very well. And with the public acceptance has come the concept of organ donation, so that now about uh, 60% of the Minnesotans uh, have recognized the importance of organ donation by signing or recognizing themselves, identifying themselves as wanting to be organ donors. Almost 60%. Right. Pretty impressive. That's a, a good number, and we'd like to see that grow even more. Because uh, as we said at the beginning, 120,000 people uh, in this country are waiting on a list for an organ transplant. What is the uh, most needed organ of those 120,000? The, the, the largest number of people waiting are waiting for kidney transplant. And is that partly related to the epidemic of diabetes in this country, which uh, destroys the kidneys? Well, I think it's it's uh, multifactorial. It's uh, diabetes, it's high blood pressure, it's uh, sometimes abuse of uh, pain medications, analgesia uh, that can cause kidney failure. There are a variety of causes. So other major advances in the past 60 years, Dr. Brooks? Well, the ability to suppress the immune system to prevent rejection of the transplanted heart is obviously critical. In the early days, we had very crude immunosuppression that suppressed your entire immune system and it made it hard to fight regular infections. Now we have more targeted immunosuppression, uh, but we still have some uh, ways to go to improve that. So the anti-rejection drugs are a lot better than they used to be. That's right. Does it make it hard, though, for patients to conceive of that? Does I mean, does it make them ill 
as they go through their life then with this transplanted organ, or can they just get back to their previous health? Well, really, most patients get back to their previous health. And uh, in the heart transplant area, we have many patients who've returned to run marathons. To uh, uh, We have a patient who biked across the United States after his heart transplant. We have a patient who uh, did a solo sail around the world in a 26-foot sailboat to show what uh, a double organ transplant heart and kidney recipient could do. So they get back to a very active, normal life, but they do have to take medication. They have to pay attention to their symptoms, and they have to follow with uh, a medical team regularly. I have one more question that I want to ask. Is there a message that you would give to people who are still wrestling with the idea of if they want to be an organ donor or not? Well, um, that's a a great question. And and organ donation is a very personal decision. But uh, the fact is that there, there are certain principles about organ donation. The first people need to understand is if they come into a hospital, the role of the hospital and the medical team is to take care of that patient. And we only think about them as organ donors if they become brain dead, if they have no hope of recovery and cease to have brain function, then they can become an organ donor. So it doesn't interfere with the patient getting the right medical care if they're sick themselves. Uh, the other point to understand is that all faiths, uh, major faiths in this country support organ donation. And one donor can save uh, or help uh, maybe 50 or 60 patients by giving organs, by giving tissue, cornea, and so on. Um, so th- their effect is uh, is profound. In the years that I've done this, I've met with a number of organ donor families, and they've never regretted the decision. It's always been a decision that's provided them comfort and some some peace of mind in an otherwise difficult situation. By the way, if you uh, are in our audience and would like to explore or learn about living donation, we didn't have a chance to talk about that, but that you can be a living donor and you can donate your kidney or your liver, correct? Correct. If you'd like to learn more about that, you go to www.mayoclinic.org. And if you want to give the gift of life, uh, information on organ donation is www.donatelife.net. Pretty amazing. A lot of huge advances in the past 60 years. And the next time you come on the program, you may we may not even need any donors. You'll be able to regenerate the organ. We'll look forward to that. Dr. Brooks Edwards is director of the William J. Von Liebig Center for Transplantation and Clinical Regeneration at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, five liver transplants in one day. We'll talk to the surgeon who led that transplant team. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. It's all over the news. Adults are rehydrating after overindulging or intense exercise with a product originally made for kids. Yes, they're drinking Pedialyte, the oral electrolyte solution. Basically, it's a mix that includes water and minerals. The minerals, sodium, calcium, potassium, and magnesium, are electrolytes. And Mayo Clinic performance dietitian Luke Corey says they are important for muscle and nerve function. When you sweat a lot or lose fluid other ways, electrolytes can become imbalanced. Corey says Pedialyte is a low-sugar way to replace them. Sports drinks work, too. He says another option is water plus a balanced snack. 
The key is to try to avoid dehydration by drinking plenty of water regularly. And that's a Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McFray. Organ transplant surgery is technically, it's a technically demanding procedure. Now, you don't know, and actually I don't either, but <laughs> it's an operation that requires both skill and stamina on the part of the surgical team. For example, a liver transplant can take several hours to finish up. So if you can, Tom, the <laughs> orthopedic guy over here, imagine performing not one, but five liver transplants in one 24-hour period. Can't imagine. Yeah. Along with several transplant teams, that's what our next guest did earlier this year. He's Mayo Clinic transplant surgeon Dr. Charles Rosen. And in addition to transplant marathon that he did back in March, or that he was part of back in March, Dr. Rosen completed his 1,000th liver transplant earlier this month. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rosen. Thank you very much. It's Dr. a pleasure to be here. All right, Dr. Rose, nice to have you here. I'm glad you're still standing. So uh, only the first 1,000 are tough, huh? Yeah, I think I'd get it right after a few. <laughs> 1,000 liver transplants. That's right. And five in one day. Well, that was, that was our team. I only was involved with three of them and kind of quarterbacked the logistics uh, since I was on call that day. You and did three of the five transplants. Is that what you just said? Well, I was uh, the staff surgeon for three of the five oh transplants. Goodness. and. Two of my other uh, surgical partners were involved, four or five anesthesiologists, our whole liver transplant team, and one was actually combined with a with a heart transplant, so uh, we had that team involved as well. Can you, I should have been counting on my fingers as you just rattled that off, how many people are on a team to make a liver transplant possible? Well, immediately in the operating room, we have a, a, a surgeon and a fellow, an anesthesiologist, a nurse anesthetist, uh, usually an anesthesia fellow, a cell saver nurse, and then our OR team, which is three other people. But in addition to that, there's our very important team with LifeSource that's helped us with the procurement that might be a, one of the LifeSource coordinators and also a, a person that goes out and helps with the procedure. Uh, and in addition to that, there's the pilots that ferry the team and uh, the team that does the procurement. But to do five in one 24-hour period, a lot of those people, like you said, you were involved in three of them. A lot of those people doubled up that. There wasn't five full teams that pulled this off. That's right. Uh, there was a bit of doubling up. but. We kind of designed our program for the cluster effect, as we call it. Um, and actually, one of the statisticians one day told me that if you do 100 uh, events randomly scattered over 365 days in the year, that the chances of uh, when you do one of having two or more at the same day is actually 43%. So it's not unusual for us to do two or three transplants in a 24-hour period of time. We just got caught with five, and fortunately our team was able to come together and make sure that we could take care of all those patients. That's not because five livers become uh, available, right? It's because you can use pieces of a liver? Well, this was actually four separate donors, really? uh, and then the, uh, the heart liver recipient had a disease called familial amyloidosis, where we take out the liver, but the liver's normal. It just makes an abnormal protein, and we can use that liver for another patient. So one of our patients benefited from the domino donation. The other four donors were from deceased donor procurements uh, done in three different states. Domino donation? Ex explain that, will you? Um, there's a disease called familial amyloidosis where the liver makes too much of a protein called amyloid, and that protein sets up housekeeping in other organs and causes problems, uh, particularly the heart. And so these patients need a heart transplant. But the, we have to get rid of that amyloid protein, and the only way to do that is to take out the liver, and, of course, then we need to replace it. 
but the liver that we take out, we can use for somebody else. It continues to make that protein in the new patient uh, in, in its new home, but that patient might not develop problems for 20, 30, or 40 years. And so if we can use that liver for somebody age 60 or older, it's a pretty good opportunity for them to get a transplant. Okay. But this domino effect, I mean, where when one, one person donates and then another donates, and it, it, tell us about that because there have been several of those stories in the news. That's a bit different. That's called a kidney exchange where somebody has a living donor that uh, might not be a good match for them, and you can exchange donors uh, uh, with another recipient or even a- along a chain of events so that uh, uh, if there's a donor and a recipient pair A, donor A might uh, donate to recipient B, donor B might go to recipient C, donor C back to A. Well, there you go. It's all about the ABCs, isn't it? <laughs> it's geometry. I just knew it. Hey, what was the most challenging part of that 24 hours for you? Or for you, first of all, what was the most challenging part? Well, we uh, take a lot of organ offers. They come electronically, and then once we put in a provisional acceptance for our patient, uh, we work with a local organ procurement uh, group, which might be in a different state as it was in two of these uh, for two of these donors, and also with our own team to arrange the the donation process, the procurement operation, and the subsequent transplant. Uh, for me, it was getting the uh, um, different organ procurement organizations in the different states to kind of work with timing so that we could make sure that we could get all the transplants done without trying to double up uh, uh, our OR teams or the to most, triple up. The most demanding part was the secretarial part of it. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I, I kind of, uh, I got a lot of satisfaction out of that negotiation. Wow. <laughs> so how long do you have? Let's say that a donor a liver becomes available in Wyoming. And uh, can you get that and still get it back here to Minnesota in time? Or how much time do you have? We can do that. Uh, we've taken organs from all the states in the country, even occasionally Hawaii, but that's a little bit tough with uh, logistics and using commercial air travel. But with a liver, we generally like to have it uh, taken out and then put back in within a six-hour period of time, and we can almost always accomplish that. And before we wrap up here, now it's about three months later. How is How are all the patients doing? Can you tell us? Those five recipients are all doing fine. Very good. That's great. And the other thing, interesting thing about this is that if you are a living liver donor, uh, your liver can reconstitute itself. And how long does that take? It's a, a short period of time. Well, it, the liver regenerates over a period of time, but about if we take out 60% of the liver, that remaining 40% will double in size in the first week. It's absolutely amazing. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosen, for filling us in on this extraordinary story. Again, Dr. Charles Rosen is a transplant surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, with springtime allergy season at its peak, we'll get tips on managing symptoms from an allergy specialist and how to prevent window falls among young children. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. What's not to like about going on a picnic, but all that tasty food might attract unwanted guests 
bees. Now, bees are important for the environment, but they can be a worry for people who get stung. Most of the time, it's going to be a welt, and that can be treated with some ice and uh, uh, some over-the-counter antihistamines. But Mayo Clinic ER doctor David Claypool says bee stings can be very dangerous for people who have allergic reactions. When we start to worry is if you start to get welts or also called hives in areas that aren't where you got stung, but if you got stung in the arm, you got a weld on the back, then you should probably be seen. And call 911 if you have what's called an anaphylactic reaction. Your lips swell and it gets hard to breathe. If you've had a serious reaction in the past, you should have an epinephrine auto-injector that you and your friends and family know how to use with you at all times. Remember, bees aren't out to get you, but if one does, be prepared. Know how to handle a possible allergic reaction. People flock to the water when it's warm outside and the sun shines. Whether you're lounging in the waves, fishing for the big one, or being pulled behind a boat, prevention is key to staying injury-free on the water. Preventable injury is, uh, is a leading cause of death uh, for those under the age of 45. Uh, it causes more loss of life than the next five causes of death combined. And virtually every injury, unless you're struck by a meteor, uh, is, uh, is preventable. Mayo Clinic trauma surgeon Dr. Donald Jenkins says if you're on the water, definitely know how to swim. While boating, wear a life preserver, don't drink and boat, be aware of hazards such as rocks, logs, or buoys, and always keep an eye on your kids. And if you have any type of cut or laceration, be sure to rinse off when you get out of the water to prevent possible infections. Simple precautions that will help keep you safe. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, unfortunately, for a lot of us, it goes with the territory. Along with the beautiful flowers of spring comes the pollen. And that can cause sneezing, runny nose, itchy, watery eyes. Spring. Right. And springtime allergies are currently in full bloom in many parts of the country. Pollen allergies can ruin a springtime outing and leave you miserable. There are several medications available to treat pollen allergies, but sometimes even those don't completely resolve your symptoms. Well, here to talk about what you can do for relief from pollen allergies is Mayo Clinic allergy specialist, Dr. Rohit Divakar. Welcome to the program, Dr. Divakar. Nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you. So it is pollen season. Actually, we're probably on the downside of pollen season in Minnesota, or are we? <laughs> uh, pollen season is pretty broad because it starts with tree pollens in the spring, continues to grasses in the summertime, and typically it's ragweed in the fall or weeds. And one thing I would like to correct on your introduction is the beautiful flowers rarely cause allergies. What is well, it? That there the, you go. She the, it's the trees. Tree pollen, well, we, isn't we've it? We've been blaming the flowers. <laughs> so uh, there are two kinds of pollen. One is pollen that is propagated by insects, and the other is one that is dispersed in the wind. And the pollen that's dispersed in the wind comes from these trees or grasses, and that is the one that is very allergenic. And the pretty flowers, the pollen is thicker, it's stickier, it doesn't float around as much. So that does not tend to cause allergies as much as the wind-pollinated So tell us uh, about an allergic reaction. What really goes on when uh, a person is uh, exposed to a a pollen that their body doesn't like? What happens? So uh, an allergic reaction is typically comprised of two phases. The first phase is what is called as the sensitization phase, meaning you have been introduced 
to this allergen for the very first time. And if you have the right background, or I would say the wrong background, <laughs> and the genetic predisposition, then you develop what are called as allergic antibodies or IgE antibodies. And these antibodies, they float around in circulation and they don't cause much harm until such a time you are exposed to the allergen again, at which time now the allergen binds to this antibody and it sets off a cascade of immune reactions that typically present in sneezing, itchy eyes, asthma, hives sometimes too. Why is it though that I didn't have allergies when I was a kid, but I seem to have developed this springtime allergy in my adulthood? Um, There are a number of factors to explain that. One is if you grew up in a part of the country where you did not get exposed to some of the uh, local flora and fauna, then uh, you might not grow up with allergies. This is very common with people who move to a different country or another part of the country and they develop allergies because growing up they were not exposed to those things. But now, because of their genetic predisposition, they are starting to develop these reactions. Well, that's not me. You never should have left South Dakota. I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I'm allergic to Minnesota. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I'm just to stay in the Midwest, though, so it is something I developed later on. Right. And uh, there are a few other things that people talk about. One is the probably uh, hygiene hypothesis, meaning if you have the right predisposition and your immune system doesn't get the instruction that it is required to decide whether it wants to be an effective immune system or whether it wants to be a rogue immune system, (laughs) then living too clean has made us more uh, allergic, and that's one of the hypotheses that's uh, often discussed. Living too clean yeah. has left us more susceptible to allergies. That is one of the hypotheses. Interesting. Now, do different pollens or r- different ragweeds cause different symptoms, or is it kind of uh, personal and body specific? Um, some people tend to have more upper respiratory reactions, others more have lower respiratory reactions. Uh, it also depends on the size of the pollen. Uh, pollen particles are very, very active molecules. Uh, they have enzymes, they have proteins that are biologically active. So if some of these pollen particles get broken down, then you can inhale them all the way into your lower airways, and then people can have severe bronchospasm and asthma-type reactions. Heavier pollen tends to deposit on the skin. You can get itching of the eyes and just uh, upper respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion. So what is the benefit of being tested for it? As I said, I developed it when I was an adult. I've never been tested. I just know that every year at about this time, all of the symptoms that you just listed start. What Should I get tested for allergies? I think it would be highly recommended because at least you would know what is it that you're sensitive to. And knowing your sensitivities goes a long way in trying to um, address uh, why you are getting the reactions in the first place. A common problem is a lot of folks have trees in their backyard, and that's the exact tree that they are allergic to. Uh, We don't necessarily recommend cutting down the tree, but uh, (laughs) what they could do is maybe prune it or perhaps uh, uh, take care of their home such that they don't get a lot of pollen coming inside their home. And that's why I've never gone and gotten tested because I thought, what difference does it make? I'm just going to, they'll say, yep, you've got allergies. Right. How do people, how do you test people for for allergies? So there are two ways to test people for allergies. One is by the way of a skin test, and that is one of the most direct ways of 
looking for evidence of sensitization. Like a patch test? A prick test. So you put a little of the allergen uh, or the pollen or whatever underneath the skin? Yes. It takes a little needle. Right. So we prick the skin with a little drop of the serum, and uh, we wait about 20 minutes to half an hour to see if a reaction develops. And typically, the kind of reaction that we are looking for is, in the simplest terms, would be described as a bug bite. So like a mosquito, if it bit you, it has a raised, itchy area, and that's what we are looking for. And uh, we usually test for a panel of allergens that are prevalent to the area that you are from. So if you are from, say, the West Coast, then we would look for the things that grow around the West Coast. And uh, depending on what we find, positive or negative, then that gives us a clue as to what you would be sensitive to. And so short of sealing my windows closed and chopping down the trees that would be affecting me, then what else to, What else would I do? So a few other things uh, could be done. Now, when it comes to a lot of pollinosis, which is pollen that's outside, there is not much we can do because nature prevails ultimately. I'll take the few months off, Tom, and just <laughs> you take care of it yourself. <laughs> Um, However, there are some things you could do. For example, if you anticipate a lot of outdoor activity, then wearing a mask that prevents inhaling all of this pollen would certainly help you um, in a long ways. Other things would be protective eyewear that forms a seal around your eyes that might help you with the itching and preventing the pollen from depositing in your eye. Uh, Some things would be make sure when you come home... uh, you could take a bath Mm -hmm. because you want to rinse off all that pollen that's sticking to your hair and your skin. You do not want to take it into your bed and then be exposed to it again when you sleep for eight hours at night. Honey, you fixed dinner. I got to go to the tub. (laughs) Take a shower. All right. So we uh, don't have too much time remaining. Let's talk about medications. First of all, over-the-counter. Anything over-the-counter that really helps? A lot of antihistamines are pretty useful in milder cases of uh, allergies, and these would be uh, medications like cetirizine or fexofenadine. Now, good news is that a lot of nasal medications, which used to be prescription before, are also available over the counter. They have a remarkably good safety profile, uh, and they need to be used on a, uh, a persistent basis to have any benefit. And if those don't work, you've got a lot of prescription medications in your your armamentarium. Absolutely. And then uh, immunotherapy, which is allergy shots, is also an option for those who suffer from really bad allergies. All right. So lots of options. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Debicard. Good to have you on the program. Thank you. Happy spring. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a short break. But when we come back, each year about 5,000 young children are injured or die as a result of falling from windows. We'll hear from a Mayo Clinic pediatric surgeon about what you can do to protect your children, keep them from falling out of windows. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. Unintentional falls are the number one cause of non-fatal injuries among children, and 38% of fall-related injuries occur in children age 4 and under. That may not be surprising. After all, kids are often scrambling about and running before they learn to walk as they explore their environments. But there's one type of fall, the window fall, falling out of an open or unguarded window that is often far more serious than a scraped knee or elbow. Window falls among children often lead to serious injury or death. Here to discuss preventing falls among children is Mayo Clinic pediatric surgeon Dr. Chris Moyer. Welcome to the program, Dr. Moyer. Thanks, Tracy. It's great to have you here. And what an odd topic. I had no idea window falls were such a big problem. 
Exactly. It kind of sounds like that should be a nice place to go on vacation or something. Let's go to Window Falls. Window Falls. (laughs) They have lovely food there. Right, exactly. So why is it that, I guess we think Window Falls, we think about, uh, you know, what you hear on the news, that a child falls out of a window and lands in the wood chips and is fine, and what a miracle that is. Mm -hmm. Or possibly when a child dies after falling out of a window. But how common is it? Well, it's more common than you think. Hmm. Um, there was a study in the National Trauma Database, 100,000 kids falling out of windows in the last two decades. That's 5,000 every year. That's 14 every single day that end up in an emergency department. And because it's you know seasonally related, sure. you know there's going to be more than 14 children showing up in emergency rooms this time of year having fallen out of a window. And... I thought, well, if everybody had screens on the windows, this wouldn't be a problem, but I was wrong. I'm very wrong, aren't I? Absolutely. Screens keep the bugs out, not the kids in. I just can't believe that. Explain a little bit more. Sure. And and all you have to do is kind of picture a curious two-year-old. Sure. You know, a big roly-poly two-year-old boy climbing on the furniture, looking out a second-story window, leaning out, mm-hmm. leaning against the screen to take a look at what's down below, or maybe a big brother's down below, and the screen gives way, mm. out they go. And there's no uh, no rhyme or reason. It's farmhouses, it's urban apartments, it's all over the all over the Anywhere board. Anywhere that you have second story windows or tragically higher story windows, such sure. as in urban environments with apartment buildings, uh, that's by far the worst. But anything above you know ground height can certainly. In- What's most common? under age five, one or two-year-olds, so it doesn't have to take very high to get a serious injury. And I suppose, you know, we hear about the ones that are apartments because those are usually the tragic ending or the miraculous ending. Right. But the number of kids who fall out of the house into the backyard and just Absolutely. land in the grass, that's what is more common. We, we think, you know, even with 14 children showing up on average every single day to emergency rooms after falling out, we think that's an underestimation because the kids do fall on grass or trees or plants or something like that. But it happens, it happens frequently, and folks just aren't aware hmm. of it. All right, and what about a window guard? What is that? Window guards are great. Um, actually, New York City actually enacted a legislation about education and putting window guards in place. They're kind of like bars on your windows mm-hmm. um, that prevent the... They're obviously way better than a screen, and they're bolted on, and there's several commercial products available for that. Mm. In New York, it reduced the number of visits to emergency room by 50% and the serious injuries by 35%. Something as simple as furniture placement even might be something to think about. Right, yeah. So if you don't want bars on your windows, um, there's a few things you can do. Sure. Um, one, you know, because these are usually one and two year olds who have, they, they can't get to a window, mm-hmm. but they get to it by climbing on furniture or rolling off a bed, something like that. Two, so, so, so pull the furniture away. Right. Um, two, don't open the bottom part of the window. Mm-hmm. If you have windows that open on the top, open that part. Or there's window locks where you can only open it a few inches. So a child just can't get out through that amount. And three, supervise your kids. If you have Mm -hmm. an open window upstairs, just make it so the kids can't get upstairs. (laughs) I can just, I can think of a handful of friends who said, oh yeah, we were jumping on the bed when we were kids and somebody went out the window. Exactly. That story all the time. (laughs) All right. You had mentioned not only windows, but there are the big three when it comes to falls. The terrible three. The terrible three. So windows is, (laughs) windows is one of them. Windows, 
baby walkers. Believe it or not, baby walkers and playground equipment, including trampolines. Sure, trampolines. Mm -hmm. And uh, there has to be, we're getting into trampoline season now. Absolutely. I know there's some parts of the country where it's always trampoline season, but kids just want to be outside Everybody loves trampolines. Trampolines are especially dangerous for small kids, actually. Mm. Um, And it's there's a little physics involved here. When you have a whole bunch of kids jumping on a trampoline, the bigger kids, when they come down, the trampoline for a moment is like a sheet of cement. And a small child falls on that and gets severely injured. Mm-hmm. You just wouldn't think wouldn't think about it. But when you have a bunch of kids on the trampoline, the smallest one is the one who gets injured. And what about people who now are burying their trampolines so that they are at gr- ground level? Sure. That, that helps for falling off the trampoline. Sure. But it doesn't help for when you have multiple children on the trampoline where you have that moment in time when the trampoline is like a sheet like of Like cement. I never have even heard of that before. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, you just don't think about it until you think about it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Until somebody gets hurt. Until somebody gets hit. Uh, and when it comes to playgrounds, you know, we had the asphalt playgrounds with the great big monkey bars back in my day, and it's all changed now, but there's probably a pretty good reason because of it, and it's because of falls. Right. Um, what do kids do? They fall. Right. <laughs> um, what do kids love to do? Explore, climb on things, uh, go on playground equipment. By all means, we our kids need to be curious, adventurous kids. Um, but try to find playground equipment that's the right size. Um, try to supervise them. And then when they do fall... If you can in your neighborhood, if you've got those ones with the mulch and the little rubberized mm-hmm. stuff that you end up in the climbing walls and that sort of thing, wonderful. They can, children like to bounce and they can bounce on that too. That's right. Um, you had briefly mentioned walkers and baby mm. walkers and how large they have become. We're right. all, everybody wonders why. You explained to me why before we got started. Yeah, baby walkers, you wouldn't think baby walkers are in the terrible three, would you? Um, but, the babies are fine, the walkers are fine, but then they go downstairs hmm. or they go off embankments, something like that. So now the the ones after 1997 are made so big, you can't easily fit them out through a door. Or if you're at the top of the stairs, if they're railings, it won't kind of fit down the mm-hmm. stairs. Uh, so walkers are something to uh, keep in mind. You should not use the walker that you used as a child. Find Get a new one. <laughs> Absolutely. That one in the basement, unfortunately, has got to go to the scrap heap. And what if um, someone falls? Uh, whether it's a window at the playground or the child in the walker, what should you look for to determine that they need to go to the emergency room right away? Well, the the biggest risk to small children is head injury. Mm-hmm. They're three times more likely to get a head injury from these kind of falls. And therefore, how does your child look and act? The obvious stuff. Unconscious, of course you sure. go. Uh, altered level of conscious, of course you go. But what about an hour later where your child's still kind of fussy, cranky, not really taking their dinner? Those kids need to go as well. The emergency room. Absolutely. Anything else that we need to know about falls? Um, it's just a wonderful thing. Just w- play with your kids. Enjoy your time with the kids. Uh, prov- protect and follow them as they're playing. Thank you so much, Dr. Moyer, for coming in to talk about preventing falls among children. Again, Dr. Chris Moyer is a pediatric surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Moyer. You're welcome. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.